you turn to the book of Malachi, as many of you are aware, that's where we will spend much of our time today in preparation. When one thinks of the most appealing attribute of God, what perhaps do you think that might be? Of course, that's rhetorical. But I would venture to guess that would be love. That's what we have sung about and worshipped here even today. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we read that God is love. Of course, we all know John 3.16, probably the most quoted Bible verse of all time. On the beginning half of that verse, we read, For God so loved the world. These are just two verses in a sea of examples when it comes to the love of God. With that being said, what do you think might be the most hated attribute of God? Charles Spurgeon, in 1865, offered a thought concerning what might be the most hated attribute of God. This is a lengthy quote, but a profound one for us in setting the stage in this passage for today. The Lord does whatever pleases Him throughout all heaven and earth and on all the seas and in their depths. Psalm 135, I'm sorry, Psalm 115, verse 3. The Lord does whatever pleases him. Let me back up. The first one was, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That's Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 135, verse 6 reads, the Lord does whatever pleases him throughout all heaven and earth and on the seas and in their depths. Or Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, all the prophets of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. Spurgeon goes on to say, on the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, then his creatures gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim and enthrone God, and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter... Then we are hissed and abhorred. 
And then men turn a deaf ear to us, for God on his throne is not the God they love. No doctrine in the whole word of God has more excited the hatred of mankind than the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God. He goes on to say, were it not for the sovereign grace, none of us would ever have followed the path to heaven. Now last week, I mentioned that we would begin to unfold and unlock the door of what it means to embrace God's love. Today we'll see from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, how two attributes, the love of God and the sovereignty of God, combine to create what I believe wholeheartedly to be one of the most encouraging truths we will ever know. How is an understanding of the sovereign love of God helpful? That's the question for us to explore today. We'll see that for the nation of Israel, it was tremendous in communicating this undeserved love to God's chosen people and a motivator for their obedience. As for us, we'll look at three fruits taken from these verses when it comes to such understanding. The goal for today will be for us in examining these fruits that they would ultimately drive us to a greater attitude and appreciation of Christ and all he is and who he is. Would you stand with me, please? As we read from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, our passage for today. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. You may be seated. Our first fruit, when it comes to understanding the love of the sovereign God, is an attitude of humility. Verse 2 
will be our main focus for this fruit. Although, in order to set the overall tone and theme, let me make one comment concerning what some might pass over in verse 1. As we discussed last week in our overview, there were many challenges given throughout this message to the nation of Israel. As we saw, these challenges were rightfully given, rightfully deserved for a cold-hearted, callous, disobedient people. They needed to hear these challenges. At times, we need to hear challenges from the the Word of God. Nevertheless, this word oracle certainly conveys the burden of the Lord for His people, but it also communicates reassurance. This is crucial for us to note, that on the front end of a letter full with many challenges, reassurance and sovereign love are key fundamental themes behind this book. As we progress throughout the study, at times, many of us will feel the weight of these challenges ourselves when it comes to a 21st century application. Although let's purpose never to forget that the sovereign love of God is unconditional to his people. Moreover, it's because of this sovereign love that we will be even more empowered to practice obedience and righteousness because of it. So, regarding God's sovereign love for Israel, we first read in verse 2, as you see, I have loved you, says the Lord. This word love in the Hebrew is powerful indeed. It's covenantal and that it communicates much loyalty and great affection. Think about that on the surface in the face of how these people were so disobedient, as we looked at last week. The word is covenantal, and is clearly communicated first in Deuteronomy chapter 7, when we see and hear of this covenantal, sovereign election of the nation of Israel. Listen to verses 6 and 8, Deuteronomy chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. For you are a holy people to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand 
and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. However, and unfortunately, whether the proven historical examples of God's love or even this great declaration in Deuteronomy chapter 7 concerning his choosing of a people, the people still responded with, how has he loved us? Last week we mentioned several of these covenantal promises in the Abrahamic and Davidic and New Covenant. There's no doubting that the people were increasingly impatient when it came to the inauguration, if you will, of these promises. The historical context that we referenced last week would, of course, have been a barrier to them in recognizing and embracing these covenants as not yet fulfilled. Although we also see in chapter 1, verse 8, that the current context did not help in the matter as well, as they were under Persian Gentile rule. Although the temple had been rebuilt, and they had been returned to their homeland, they were still under Gentile rule. Perhaps many of us understand the difficulty of waiting on the Lord. And his specific promises, even for us here in this church age, do we at times feel as though God's love is based upon our circumstantial timeline and what we prefer when we want it? Many of you perhaps are reminded of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And that thorn in the flesh that he desired to be removed, yet God never took it from him. But Paul came to the acknowledgement that God allowed for that thorn still to be in his flesh to keep him from exalting himself. An attitude of humility will certainly help us in accepting his promise of love as is proclaimed in this book for us. Not based upon any unmet needs or desires. And that being said for Israel. The Lord takes it a step further in his response to their lack of trust. A step that begins to unveil this picture of this great sovereign love and the fruit that transpires from it. It's as if he's saying, you want proof? I'll show you the perfect example. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. How does an understanding of God's love, his sovereign love, help us? It creates a greater attitude of humility. But you say, Pastor John, how does it do that? The simple answer is found even in Spurgeon's quote, as we looked at in the beginning. 
Were it not for the sovereign grace, none of us would have ever followed the path to heaven. That's humility. That's an attitude of humility. Apart from the sovereign grace and love of God, man is deserving of nothing except God's righteous judgment upon our sin. What about Malachi's message for Israel, though? How does the prophet communicate these truths to the Jewish people? Or better yet, how would they have understood his words and how would that have encouraged them to be obedient? In order to answer this question, we need to briefly look at ancient Eastern culture concerning firstborn privilege along with the life of Jacob himself. Perhaps many of us recall from Genesis chapter 25 that Jacob and Esau were twins of Isaac and Rebekah. We also know that Esau was the firstborn between these twins. Regarding this culture and firstborn privilege, listen to the comments of one commentator. The firstborn was the principal heir of the family, and upon the incapacitation of the father, through death or otherwise, the firstborn became the head of the family. In addition, the Bible is not silent on this topic as well. Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, we read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. We see also, Genesis chapter 27, verse 4. Numbers chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17. Continue illustration of the special advantage for the firstborn. So, at least from the firstborn perspective, Esau should have been the one to first receive the love and privilege of God. If that were not enough, to create an attitude of humility for the nation of Israel, let's look at the life of Jacob. Are there certain things in life that we feel as though we are just not worthy of. Perhaps some of us, it's a job, a career, children, grandchildren. For many of us in this room, it's our spouses. I can attest to that. No amount of pride could ever suffice as we consider these things or people in our lives, 
as we feel about the blessing and know the blessing, the undeserved blessing that we have in these people or in these things. Imagine being a Jew and knowing that your forefather, Jacob, hearing that God chose him over the rightful firstborn Esau. Think about that for a moment. For those of you who are very familiar with the life of Jacob, we've already established the cultural pecking order for Jacob, which he failed in. And to squash any remote idea of Jewish pride, looking at God's sovereign love for Jacob, Genesis chapter 25 and 27 and into 28, what do we see concerning Jacob? A lying, deceptive coward. A man who deceived his father. A man who tricked his brother. A man who fled as a coward from Esau in the face of such blatant deception. And yet, in spite of this, God chose to bestow his sovereign love upon Jacob rather than Esau? Now, perhaps you're saying that's all well and good for Israel. How does this Sovereign, electing love of God upon Jacob help to create an attitude of humility for me? I'm glad you asked. The answer by way of progressive revelation is clearly displayed and tied to this text by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. However, before we turn there, it's important for me to make one comment. Some of you may be familiar with it. Even if you're not, it's important to answer certain objections. Well-meaning believers, at times, give to what I will propose to you as the truth of Scripture. The assertion is made, once again, I will say by well-meaning believers... That given the context of what we will see in verses 3 and 4 in Malachi, the prophet is strictly referring to the election of nations as compared to individuals. As for Romans chapter 9, the same argument is used. Given the fact that the prophet quotes from Malachi, with that argument in place. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Follow along with me in verses 11 through 13. You'll hear Paul quote from Malachi chapter 1. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, 
not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So, how do we respond to the assertion that is made that we are only speaking of the election of nations in Malachi chapter 1? The answer is twofold. First, regarding Malachi, we can certainly affirm that in one respect, a national election of God's chosen people is referenced. However, to utilize this argument against God's sovereign elections for individuals is completely illogical and simply indefensible. The prophet clearly speaks of the individual Jacob. Not to mention, to choose a nation is to choose individuals. Secondly, Paul, an inspired writer of Scripture, interprets and quotes this passage as an application for individual sovereign election and love of God upon his people. We see this in the verses we've just read in Romans chapter 9, not to mention we cannot divorce and we won't go there now. Romans chapter 8 from Romans chapter 9 and the great individual promises for God's chosen people. Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30, the golden chain of redemption that applies to individuals. This is key for us. In our introduction, we referenced Spurgeon's claim of hate for this attribute. I believe wholeheartedly that the major contributor to this faulty interpretation of what we are examining here today is based upon a misunderstanding of what is considered unfair. If we're in need of one more defense for an attitude of humility for us here individually, an acceptance of the sovereign individual love of God, then I would simply ask one question. Do we desire to be on the side of the Apostle Paul or his detractors? The reason why we ask that question is the Apostle Paul himself deals with the charge of unfairness concerning this great truth. If you're still in Romans chapter 9, look at verses 14 and 16. He says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. 
He even goes on to say in verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And our next fruit, we'll explore more on the Esau side. But for now, when it comes to the sovereign election and love of God upon Jacob, how can we not relate with Jacob? in his wretched, unworthy life. How can we not, in relating, in turn, manifest an attitude of humility that if you are in Christ here today, wretched as you were, apart from the grace of God, he chose you. Our second fruit is an appreciation of grace. Appreciation of grace. As a reminder, we've defined grace now several times. Grace is the compassionate influence of a holy God upon undeserving sinners. We clearly saw this undeserving aspect in our lives when it comes to an attitude of humility. Turn back now to Malachi. As we look at verses 3 and 4, as it pertains to a greater appreciation of grace. Verses 3 and 4 we read, But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Perhaps those that struggle with God's sovereign love can maybe understand the fact of Jacob I love. But it's a whole new can of worms to listen to the phrase Esau I hated. Before we deal with that phrase, Esau I hated, I want us to look at the overall context of these two verses. We can see here that Edom or the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Speaking of these Edomites, listen again to the positive judgments being communicated within these verses. He has made their territory a desolation. Or you could say a wasteland. He has appointed their inheritance for the animals of the desert, if you will. He is tearing down what they attempt to build back. He is calling their territory wicked. 
and the strongest words of them all. He says, these are a people whom he is angered with forever. From the initial Jacob and Esau struggle, through King Herod, during the infant years of Christ, the animosity between these two people groups continued. It was prophets such as Ezekiel, and Obadiah, and Amos, that foretold the eventual utter destruction and demise of these people. With that brief context understood, let's return to this phrase, Esau I hated. How does it contribute to a greater appreciation of grace? That was our goal for this morning. That we would grow in our attitude and appreciation of Christ. There's some that would have us believe that this word hate is sort of an exaggeration and actually means love less. There are certainly times within Scripture when this is a valid interpretation. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. However, is that an appropriate interpretation based upon the context that we've just looked at and specifically five judgments given to these people? Once again, the Lord says these are a people whom he is angered with forever. In addition... Throughout Scripture, we see numerous examples of God's wrath upon disobedient people. Psalm chapter 5, verse 5 reads, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Psalm chapter 11, verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Or what about Paul's description of all mankind apart from the sovereign love of God in Romans chapter 1, verse 18? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 20th century commentator and Scottish theologian John Murray wrote the following concerning this reference of hate. The divine reaction stated could scarcely be reduced to that of not loving or loving less. There is also a vehement quality that may not be discounted. We must not predicate of his divine hate those unworthy features which belong to hate as exercised by sinful man. In God's hate, there is no malice, malignancy, 
vindictiveness, unholy rancor, or bitterness. So, again, how does this contribute to us in a greater appreciation of grace? You already stated, as John 3.16 clearly communicates, God so loved the world. You sound like you're contradictory there, preacher. There's indeed a sense in which God conveys common grace and common love to the entire world. However, we've also clearly seen that God's wrath or his holy hatred, just and righteous hatred, is upon the sinner. Moreover, today we've clearly seen that whether it's Genesis chapter 25, or here in Malachi chapter 1, or in Romans chapter 9, God has clearly chosen to set a special unconditional love upon certain undeserving sinners before they were even born. When thinking of Esau as the one in whom God chose to leave in his sinful rebellion, how can we not find a greater appreciation of grace? Perhaps there's some that struggle, and I know this personally to be the case, with this phrase, Esau, I hated. In all reality, the greater question should be, how could God have ever loved Jacob? A far more important question. If we are in Christ here today, we can relate with Jacob. There was nothing in us that was worthy of God's sovereign love. Nothing. We were utterly unable to remedy our lost condition, and nor did we desire to do so. As Ephesians 2 says, that we continually pursued the lusts of our flesh. But God, in the same manner that he chose Jacob, if you are in Christ here today, chose you. Sovereign love. Rather than allowing his wrath and judgment to remain, he chose you while you were in your mother's womb. Or better yet, before the foundation of the world. How immensely magnificent is that? My dear, dear brothers and sisters and friends in Christ, do we desire to practice more humility? To appreciate more grace in order that we might give more grace? It's this type of understanding 
of the sovereign love of God that will empower us to greater applications of obedience. Moreover, we'll see in our third and final fruit its inevitable conclusion. And that is, in the third fruit, an attitude of worship. Unfortunately, there's been a trend within pockets of Christianity for some time now concerning the lack of importance in matters of doctrine and theology. Whether it's watered down, less than theological worship music, or churches that are more concerned with the social ills of the day rather than the gospel of our Lord and Savior. This has never been the case here at Marian Christian Chapel, and I give you my word, as long as I'm living and breathing, it will never be the case here. Why is this so important? I made the argument today that greater attention to detail and understanding will drive us to greater levels of obedience. Along with obedience, listen to these sweet words of the Puritan John Owen as it pertains to obedience and this third fruit of worship in conjunction with matters of doctrine and theology. All the while driving us application-wise to be men of obedience, women of obedience, practicing humility, practicing grace, and living a life filled of worship. John Owen states, and I quote, the foundation of true holiness and true worship is the doctrine of the gospel, what we are to believe. So when Christian doctrine is neglected, forsaken, or corrupted, true holiness and worship will also be neglected, forsaken, and corrupted. Unfortunately, we see this all throughout many churches in today's day and age. A proper understanding of God's sovereign love will certainly produce a greater attitude of humility, a greater appreciation of grace, and it will also inevitably produce a greater attitude and life of worship. As we draw to a close, look with me at verse 5. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. As for Israel, they would eventually see the permanent demise of Edom and experience firsthand what the prophets foretold. Moreover, because of God's faithfulness 
and his sovereign love, they would worship the Lord and fully understand that his glory reaches throughout the heavens. Far beyond the borders of Israel. As for us, having the benefit of history revealed and the word of God once and for all delivered to the saints, we too can rejoice and worship the Lord. To proclaim with a greater attitude of humility, a greater appreciation of grace, and a greater attitude of worship, sweet words such as amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Blind, but now I see. How precious the sovereign love of God for his people. A love that will never lead us to complacency. A love that will certainly create zeal in us for his glory. A love that will certainly create in us love for people. A love that will drive us to live a life of obedience, practicing righteousness. My friends, the argument is made at times, faulty as it is, that an understanding of this sovereign love leads to a sit back and let God mentality. Let it never be. It should drive us even more to greater levels of obedience as we consider this great grace by a compassionate and loving God upon undeserving sinners. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, each and every one of us stand here today humbled in your presence feeling the weight of how each and every one of us are undeserving of your great love. Lord, we can relate with Jacob. If we are in Christ here today, we have been chosen in the same way that you chose Jacob before we were even born. How, Lord? How infinite. How great the depths and mercies of God for his people. And Lord, if there be even anyone here today that has never truly come to an acknowledgement of this sovereign love, Lord, I pray that as you call them to do so, they would repent of their sins, trust in you, and receive you today. In the mighty and precious name of our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.